Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. This is Brian. I'm just giving a quick introduction to the show this week. As you heard if you listened to our New York Comic Con Spectacular, we recorded the first part of the show last week, but then tacked it on to our New York Comic Con episode because it was all about New York Comic Con news. So if you haven't listened to that, go back into your feed. It's a fun episode. We talk all about the New York Comic Con news. And, uh, and yeah, but so we're going to jump right into the reviews here in just a second. So um, yeah, thanks for listening. Here's the show. And we're back with uh, our review section. We got a lot of bat books this week, boys. A lot <laughs> of bat books. It's uh, almost like uh, he's the most popular character at DC or something. It, it's remarkably similar to that. Uh, we're going to start with All-Star Batman number 14. I believe this is the final issue of this book, right? Before it moves over to whatever that new format is going to be. That, that newfangled format? Yes, whatever that is. Uh, this is written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Raphael Albuquerque. It is the finale of the first Ally uh, storyline here, and uh, there was a twist here that I think was was probably uh, unexpected for me. I don't know about you guys, um, but overall, I thought this was a, a, a relatively satisfying conclusion to this uh, to this story. I thought there was there were one or two maybe odd moments in it, but overall, it was reasonably enjoyable what did you guys think yeah this this ended up winning me over in the end and it was on the strength of albuquerque's art and scott snyder's uh writing specifically like the again the plot itself didn't do so much for me but the way that snyder sort of tied up the alfred stuff and Alfred and Bruce's relationship again, like against all odds, it won me over because I honestly, if you told me going into this, what it was all going to be about, I couldn't care less, <laughs> Right. but for the most part, it Scott did it. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think I still came out of this a little cold, but I did like, kind of where it ended with Alfred questioning sort of his role in kind of making Bruce what he is and just sort of the ambiguity that it was left with. Um, and then, yeah, the, the kind of the twist was, I mean, I guess it was, it was cool. I, I'll be interested to see if they like follow up on that, which I'm sure they will eventually someone will. Yeah. Is the twi- is the twist that you're talking about stupid sexy Alfred? Yes, I think is. so. Yes, yeah. Okay. Stupid sexy red eyed Alfred. Alfred. <laughs> yeah, that that's going to be a character that comes back. Um, but yeah, I thought this was fine. The one moment that was a little bit odd to me was the uh, so there's there's the flashback at the end where Alfred is talking about. Like, you know, the first time he's in Wayne Manor and he, he like, breaks the grandfather clock. And in there he finds letters from his father. And I feel like, why would his father hide letters in the grandfather clock? It was just a very, very odd place to uh, to hide his, his foreign correspondence. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, any other thoughts on All Star Batman? 
Um, it was interesting. Events. I yeah. yeah, I just it 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 was a weird book throughout. Like you you never were sure where anything sort of fell in place, you know. Mm-hmm. But that didn't really matter much, and it was nice to see Snyder. Um, you know, I think he experimented a lot in this book, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't, and like. You know, the couple times that he trended more towards prose than traditional comic booking, I, I think it didn't work as well. But I like to see him have a book like this, where he doesn't have to captain, steer the whole ship, you know. Um, he can just write these side Batman stories that, that it doesn't matter where they take place. Right. Um, I think it's cool to see him do get that sort of leeway. I also think he cares about a lot of the sort of more emotional beats in Batman far more than a lot of other Bat writers do. So mm-hmm. for him to be able to do like a Batman Alfred father son story, I, I don't know if anyone else would have done it the way he did it. You know, I, I'm and I'm glad he was the one to tell that story. Right. Well, speaking of not having an emotional read on Batman. <laughs> that brings us to Batman number 32 by Tom King and Michael Janine. He would certainly like to think you to make you think that there's a lot of uh, emotions here. I feel like he cares more about it being clever than being emotional. But it's so not clever. <laughs> like I <laughs> Okay. I feel like this issue just takes like all of the things that in comics are considered like weighty and meaningful and and like this is like how to make a an important philosophically relevant comic like someone read a book that was titled that and then <laughs> and then tried to write a comic based off of that. Well, that and really and mean. No, 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 no. No, you're you're spot on. And if you consider uh, towards the end of the book when Selena is talking about how damaged and twisted they are, <laughs> right? That's what she's doing essentially. She ends up saying in the end, like her big response to all of it is, "But who cares?" It's and that's dude, not let's go bowling. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. I'm so glad you pulled that. She she does this big overwrought speech where she talks about our damn pain and all this damn pain, Bruce. And then she ends up going, but who cares? <laughs> and that's it. That's, you know, it's not saying anything deep. It's this big, long speech that wants you to think that she has some sort of point to say. And her point in the end is who cares, which I'm sorry, but that's not worth the journey that we went on. <laughs> that may be the answer, you know, maybe the answer to uh, Batman's struggle and Batman and Selena's relationship and, and the, the perils that are inherent in it is who cares. Maybe that's the right answer, but it, sure as hell isn't a clever or eloquent one. Um, it's something that, like you said, Brian, it, it it acts like it's being very clever. And um, Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, and, you just the first. Let's see, three, four, five. The first five pages have no dialogue, which <laughs> can sometimes be a good thing if you are telling something really important or if you're, you know, comics are a visual medium. And so when you can tell the story just through pictures, then you're doing a you're doing an A plus job there. But what what do we get out of those first five pages? I, I to be honest, I was worried that it was going to be like a GI Joe, uh, a silent si- issue, si- silent issue until the part with Catwoman and Bat and Batman because we knew that that was coming based on USA Today had spoiled it or whatever. But yeah. um, I I thought I thought oh god they're not going to do this whole conclusion without any dialogue as if it's some you know momentous <laughs> momentous moment in Batman comics you know. And uh, and they didn't. And Zach, you and I were talking. You you thought that that was a, maybe a good thing, considering the way that Tom King's been writing Batman. You know, maybe it, maybe it was like a nice break from having to read too much of his repetitive, overwrought dialogue. It felt like a response to that Bleeding Cool article a couple yeah. weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and I have to say that something that I said to Zach then was like. Yeah, I thought I would feel that way, and yet as I was reading the silent pages, I was, was still screaming in my head like, <laughs> "Oh, come on!" Like, I'm, I'm. I guess the the conclusion I come to is that uh, this book is out of Tom King's hands now. It's out of everyone's hands. I'm just not going to like it, no matter what it does. Uh, I can admit that. I can admit that there are other things Tom King does that I enjoy very much. This is nothing against Tom King. It's just that this book is so far off the rails that where there's dialogue or whether there's, uh, you know, a silent, maybe well choreographed fight scene, I'm just, I'm not going to put up with it shit (laughs) anymore, I guess. I, uh, so there are so many things wrong with this book. Mm -hmm. Maybe the worst part of it was how upset the Riddler was the Joker wasn't laughing. Like at so at something that's not funny at all. Right, but there's a it's like that's like a huge plot point. Like the Riddler basically says, like, I'm willing to lose this war, but only if he laughs, which is really fucking weird. Yeah. It's also twisted. How it is twisted. That just does not make sense as an idea for, like that's the payoff for this thing. And I, I kind of, I kind of liked where he, where it seemed like he was trying to go about the bit, like you know, when the Riddler is like, why does every story have to be about you? You know, that, that's a, there's a kernel of a good idea for a Batman story in there. Yeah. Um. Man. Yeah, I, you're right. There's, a, there's a kernel there. I, I, yeah. That seems to be a fundamental truth about Batman comics and about the Joker. You know, like, why, yeah, why does it have to be? But the problem is, is that when you write a ridiculous Riddler that's worse than the Joker that you wrote, then it's, it just comes off as like, you know, well, why should we care about the Riddler whining then? You know? And the other thing is that Tom King writes, I praised Tom King last week for, his approach to Commandy Challenge by writing in this very um, 
very subtextual, almost metaphorical manner uh, regarding this peril that Commandy was in. What he does in Batman is everything everything is about the idea of the character. Nothing is really about the heart. Nothing is really about the truth of the character. Everything is about some uh, metaphysical or not even that. That's giving it too much credit. Some some like psych 101 uh, view of the character. And then it takes that and it screams it at you for a six-issue arc or more or longer. You know, what has this been, eight issues or something? Um, it's felt like a lifetime. Yeah, it really has. And so this idea, you know, that the Riddler is philosophically trying to win a battle with the Joker. Obviously, like, obviously this is, this is a war where a bunch of people died. And to say that it all comes down to making the Joker laugh is a joke. It's that's, that's writing to an idea, like a psychological idea about a war between the Riddler and the Joker and not what we actually spent six or seven issues prior watching go down. Right. Right. There's, there's such a, such a disconnect there between what we witnessed and what we saw and what the grand theme of this entire thing is supposed to be. And some pedant is going to tell me that that's the point. All these people died because the Riddler and the Joker are twisted psychos when really all they wanted to do was either make the other one solve a riddle or make the other one laugh, you know, but that's not, (laughs) there's no there there. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. And this is without... We haven't even mentioned Batman's one rule yet. Well, that's what you I was realize. About, I, I was about to get to that, yeah. So, you know, Batman is, is butthurt because he broke. He was trying to break his one rule, which is, you know, you don't kill, and he tries to stab the Riddler. And... Uh, which I also felt was, like, a bit of a weird choice. If you're going to kill one of them, the Riddler seemed like the wrong one to kill in that situation. But I'll leave that... To, to Bruce's psychosis. And who wants to say why Bruce didn't kill the Riddler? Are you asking us? Yeah, who wants which one of you guys wants to wants to wants to blow the lid off this? You mean like literally why? Literally how? why, yes. Because the Joker stuck his hand in? The dumbest fucking reason. <laughs> <laughs> and because he thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, that's what I call humor. Uh waka waka yeah um so remember a few months back when i was like outraged that batman uh didn't kill somebody by sheer it was i think it was dead shot um, right it was dead shot yes yes batman was spared from murdering dead shot by a miracle of science right yes <laughs> and remember how i said if they don't return to that that's going to be such a glaring thing to me that I'm going to be appalled. Yeah. Well, they didn't return to it, but they doubled down on that exact same idea. Right. Of Batman essentially trying to do it again. And to me, it sounds really fanboyish and corny of me. And I'm not like a super, super Batman fan. Like, one of those guys where Batman is the end-all, be-all, you know, he can never lose. But 
it seems to me that to betray, again to betray that rule and say like well I would have killed somebody and I was prepared to do that and the reason I didn't was by a a sheer joke of fate you know literally I mean, I mean at least this batman feels bad about that right yeah at least it wasn't tossed off like 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 I feel like the like an actual well-written batman would have been shook by the fact that he could have killed Deadshot, you know? Right, yeah. But it's doubly worse. I mean, the situation is better, I think. His self-reflection on it is better, I guess. But it's bad that in the same arc, in the same comic, by the same writer, they doubled down on this idea that, well, Batman could kill, you know? Yeah. No, he can't. That's the point of Batman. Like, we've been through, you know... 70 odd years of the character and the point is he's not going to kill like that's been so established that (sighs) it just seems like the wrong way to go i think it's one of the few times where it's not even a valid unless you're unless you're in else worlds that i have no interest in it's not even a valid take on the character i mean in Final Crisis, when he fires that gun, it's supposed to feel like it's supposed to be unnerving, it's supposed to be exciting, it's supposed to be unusual, because Batman just doesn't do that. And that's dark side. <laughs> like, that yeah. is, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, it, you lose all the gravity of those moments if Batman is just, you know, more or less okay with uh, <laughs> with accidental manslaughter. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then to have the thing that everyone's talking about during the week being uh, Selena accepting his proposal rather than the fact that he tried to kill somebody. <laughs> yeah. And it's... I mean, I I guess it's supposed to be humanizing in a way i guess you know it's the whole like superman argument like oh he's just too good i can't relate to him so here king Mm -hmm. is you know making you know trying to to lend some i guess normal human emotion to batman um yeah so my my but my he does so in a book where batman is like pathologically obsessed with his parents death like wow. so, so much of the humanity of Batman's been removed from Tom King's Batman. So my problem, my problem with saying that about Batman too is that um, it's been proven time and time again in continuity that all of these uh, um, theories or viewpoints about Batman being just as bad or just as dangerous as his villains are proven wrong time and again. Like right. that's the Every time that's brought up in continuity, it comes to the conclusion that it's not true. And I, now I don't feel like they're going to deal with this again. And I don't feel like they're going to later show, well, no, it's, it, you know, Tom King's trying to put him on their level by having him say something like, I'm just like them, you know? But he's not. Come on. He's not. We know that. Well, on on his best behavior, he's really just like the Joker. Oh my God! And we'll get to that idea again later, yes, and I'll will. make I'll make the exact same argument when we get there. But 
Well, that was just <laughs> supposed to be a, a Seth Jan Stevens reference. Oh, I, oh, oh, I got it. I got it. Don't wow. worry. I didn't even. I'm so mad. I didn't even get it. You're right. He's a twi- he's like a twisted clown. He is. Oh man, summer jobs. Oh, oh my I, god. You fucking beat me too. I was just gonna say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. It's it's in their cars. Summer jobs, right? That's the line. Or with their cars. With their cars. Summer jobs. Oh my god. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. This has been your tender indie hour. <laughs> Well, let's get even tenderer, boys, and talk about Batman the Dawnbreaker. Uh, Okay, okay. So, Vince and I have both been pretty high on these these, uh, Dark Knight books, right? Yeah. We have, yeah. Because because I think we all kind of agree, or we, we, I think we all kind of agree that those were takes that, like, Batman, like, Batman could... Yes, those were like logical conclusions. Yes, it, yeah. it, it might be a funhouse mirror, but you can still see Batman in that. This was not that at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> this was the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, this was a nightmare, guys. <laughs> maybe, maybe because it was the most twisted book, that makes it the best metal book of all. I don't know. I mean, it was pretty metal when he, like, ripped a Guardian's, like, spine out, which, yeah. like, that's two of these books in a row where someone's spine has, like, come out. Yeah. yeah. I this thought it was um... pretty dope when he essentially melts Jim Gordon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man, the man who melts Jim Gordon. <laughs> yeah. This is, um... Th- this This feels... Like it's just torture porn. Yes, yep. the whole way through. I every page I turned to it, and I couldn't believe, it, but but in such a hacky way, like, oh, I'll, you know, you're gonna turn the page, and Batman, the Dawnbreaker, is going to be doing something terrible. <laughs> you know. But you know the worst thing he did in this issue. Um, make up a shitty Green Lantern oath. Yep, that's the one. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the biggest sin. Zach, you want to read that for us? No. Oh. With darkness oh. black, I choose the light. No brightness day, the brightest day escapes my sight. I turn the dawn to midnight. Beware my power. Dawnbreaker's might. Oh, my God. Yeah. While wearing that, like, sweet metal cod piece. Yeah. <laughs> With the uh, with the, like the searchlight on it, yeah. like he's gonna go spelunking. Yeah, you know they uh, they have the uh, they have the Batman who laughs, which is supposed to be like the Joker analog. Yeah, but this is the most twisted Batman of all. Let me just read you this: a world of light, a city of hope. Disgusting. <laughs> Let them feel helpless. Let them feel the void. Let them feel like me. I, I I will say, kind of removed from this comic, I thought the idea of like a Green Lantern who, like, was able, I guess, was so twisted on the inside and was able to kind of uh, bring out this kind of weird Lovecraftian underside to the to the like green lantern light i thought that was 
kind of an interesting concept on its own. Again, that what, like him overpowering the will. Yes. Yes. Like yeah. That and then and then you're right. Like I do like the Lovecraftian angle that you brought up because it kind of fits in line with Parallax and these other entities. It, it, it was it very much felt like part of the Green Lantern lore, whether when it wasn't really, you know, it hasn't right. been. It felt a piece of that. I agree with that. Pretty much everything else about this comic was just heinous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I, I got like subtle shades of Frank Leminski a couple times too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know me, I see Leminski everywhere I go. You see Leminski. <laughs> Everyone knows it's Leminski. <laughs> um, but one last thing I want to say about the book sure. is it reminds me of the worst. I'm thinking back to like Villains Month and yes, um, Convergence and and like those event months. The the very worst books in those special months were the ones that felt like because they got an elsewhere elseworlds or a non-canon whatever opportunity. Um, I guess Villains Month was supposed to it's supposed to all be canon, but like. It felt like such ancient, like none of those books really felt like they informed the, right, the characters despite being like zero issues for the villains. But any of them that tried to push the limits of like good taste because they got the opportunity to, I'm thinking of like the Trigon issue of Villains Month where every Ugh. page was like a new disgusting. You felt like you needed a shower afterwards. That's just what this felt like. It just felt like an opportunity to be like. Well, I'm going to kill somebody on every page, and it's going to be horrible. And isn't that going to be a twisted take on Batman? Felt like it was not much more than that, substance-wise. And Bruce felt so cartoonish, too. Like, yeah, he really did. Oh, my God. He deserves to die. You deserve to die. And I hope you burn in hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is, this is a really weird thing to bring up, but I'm going to go for it. So, um, are you guys familiar with the uh, the website and literary magazine McSweeney's? Yes. So, um, decorative gourd season. Yes, exactly. <laughs> McSweeney's did an article when I was a senior in college. That was the year that that show Joan of Arcadia came out. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they said, like, this is the clearest example of all time of somebody coming up with a title for a show, but no idea what that title meant. And they had to, like, work backwards from the title to find uh-huh. the show. The, the great cultural milestone, Joan of Arcadia. Exactly. Uh, but I feel like that's exactly what this is as well. Like, like all right, it's a Batman a Green Lantern. Cool. And then, like, literally, like, no one thought about what that meant until a week before the script is due. They're like, oh, yeah. shit. How do, we, how do we reverse engineer this? Like, there was, there was no inspiration there. And there, there is a, a, a Batman as a Green Lantern Elseworlds, Elseworlds title already. I believe mm-hmm. it's called Blackest Night or, or the Darkest yeah. Night. Something like I that. Think, yeah, one of those. Yeah, um, but this just felt like it was it was so thrown together. There was no real inspiration there. Like you said, you know, the, last week with the cyborg one, like that took some some serious, 
like mental energy to come up with a with a plot that would make sense. Even though I didn't love that issue, I thought it was good, but I didn't love it. Or even the Red Death issue, like there was there was a lot there that was well considered and that was really, you know, important to the overall story of metal. This has none of that. It mm-hmm. felt tossed off and it felt totally inconsequential. Yeah, yeah well said. Well, guys, it's that time. It's Batman White Knight time, babies. <laughs> Where we are officially going to run our twisted joke into the ground. Yes. Um, written and illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy. Um, so here, I, I mentioned before the show that I was going to, that, that like my entire understanding of this book was, was predicated on a reference. So did, 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 Either of you guys see the Lego Batman movie? Yeah. Okay, isn't this essentially the Lego Batman movie where the Joker's like, we mean something, and Batman's like, we mean nothing? Yeah, but now they get to have makeup sex. Yeah, except uh. I was going to say, that phrase was nowhere in uh Lego Batman movie. But, but essentially, it's the same thing. It's like, it's Batman saying, you know, no, you don't matter, and the Joker being like, no, I do matter. And obviously, yeah. and you know... It also goes without saying the Lego Batman movie is the best Batman movie ever made, but that's a whole other <laughs> conversation to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so I kind of liked this book up to a point because there was like for a while like when the whole like when you go to like the one year ago and on that section i i was reading it and i was getting like some good batman the animated series vibes like i was reading it with those voices in my head and it kind of worked <laughs> and then it, it then you hit the makeup sex line and i'm like oh mm-hmm. um so really there were about like four pages that i liked i liked uh i liked nightwing and his like sweet denim jacket or whatever it is he's wearing yeah there are a couple of moments in this book that would have been fine if they were not in this book. Um, I liked, you know, when you see Batman like driving over roofs, you're like, he's going too far. And then to have Batgirl and Dick being like, yeah, he's going too far. You know, like, I, I appreciated that there was there was some level of, like, the characters understand who Batman is supposed to be and recognize that this is a broken version of that character. Um, but that's about the best I can say for this book. <clears throat> Story-wise, artistically, I mean, I, I think Sean Murphy's an incredibly talented artist, and there were some very, very beautiful sequences here, but I also feel like Sean Murphy's a guy who you know what you're going to get with him, and there, there was almost no surprises artistically in this book. Yeah, that's true. That's, um... That's definitely true. Um, it's it's pretty to look at. Um, yeah, it's pretty to look at. No surprises. Um, I really like his design sense. I love the way that he... There's that one uh, image of Jack Napier, I guess, um, in his room. It looks like a cell. Is that like a... It's supposed to be like a cell? Is that when he's at, uh, yeah, that's when he's, like, being observed by Gordon, right? Oh. And, and, and his room yeah, is yeah. full of, his room is full of, like, news and Batman memorabilia and stuff. 
I love that it, it took me back to um, Joel the Barbarian, Grant Morrison, oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and Sean uh, Murphy, uh, where he filled that house with like DC toys and knickknacks and things. Um, so that's really cool. I like the way he does that. He has a I, like you look at a room designed by and filled by Sean Murphy, and you you know it's him right away. Um. Yeah, that's I, um, about that's about as nice as I'm gonna be. <laughs> I liked the bit with um, you know, something's wrong with Alfred, and we find out that he's working with uh, Mr. Freeze. Yeah, and and that they're collaborating not only to keep Alfred alive, but he's also helping Mr. Freeze out. Yeah, um, I like that aspect. Like, that's a cool plot point. Mr. Freeze is a, a character that I'd love to see one day get kind of the clayface treatment that we're getting Agreed. in yep. Detective. Um, I'm sure we're not going to get that in this series, but um, yeah, um, I thought that was a cool idea. Yeah. I thought Batman, like the, the point of this comic is that Batman has to go over the line to the point where you would be convinced that a sane Joker could take the city from Batman, who's on like a reign of terror, right? Mm-hmm. And he was so over the top. Like, they tried so hard to make Batman into this asshole to the point where he's like knocking over uh, pedestrians and things. And, you know, it's like, it's like they had to take five or six different opportunities to just show him being a total dick. You know, yep. I felt like that. I felt like that was way over the top. The first time you see Batman, he looks like a hulking goon. <laughs> like, yep. I know he's supposed to. It's supposed to contrast with this clean-cut Joker. But again, I kind of want my. I want my Elseworlds to 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 be a different presentation of the character that doesn't feel way over the top. It's the same argument I had with Dawnbreaker, you know? Um, And then also, like, there's just a couple plot things that don't make any sense or are just stupid. One of them in particular is the part where someone says something about the bat signal, you know? Like, uh, they say, like, oh, you're protecting the bats. You know, they make it sound like... um, they make it sound like it's a secret that the Gotham City Police Department uh, is working with Batman, or like, or like that they that they might not even know about him or have anything to do with him, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they're like, "Well, you're hiding the signal." And it's like, "Well, wait a minute. Nobody ever figured that out. Nobody flying over Gotham City ever figured out that the." They were in control of the bats. You know what I mean? Like, isn't the bat signal specifically thrown up by the? <laughs> right. You know, it did that. Did that? Did that part make any sense? Am I reading it wrong? I mean, I, I just took it as the, it was the Joker saying, like, you know, um, you're culpable in this, even down to the fact that you're an accessory because you because the Gotham City Police Department houses it. I don't think it was that. Right. It was a surprise, just like a. Uh, this is evidence that you're in collusion with him. Oh, he made it sound like it was some big revelation or something. The way Harvey Bullock reacted of like, oh damn or whatever, didn't didn't help that either. Because he said because 
because the Joker says, I found photos of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you found photos of it? Who Like, who wouldn't know about this if there were photos of it out there, you know? It seems like it would be common knowledge at this point. It's a gigantic signal. <laughs> that always comes from the same place. That just happens yeah. to be where the police headquarters is. Right. Yeah. So that, I I don't know. That didn't make any sense to me. Uh, the Joker just having to choke down a bunch of pills and then becoming sane. <laughs> like, yeah. Just, I don't know. It's just so over the top. I don't. Um... No, Zach, as a pharmacist, that's real, right? Um, no. <laughs> okay. No. No. It, would it would it be some sort of violation of some sort of oath for you to say that it is real? <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> he. he <laughs> I mean, obviously, I don't know what the compound is, but he probably would have either died or nothing would have happened. <laughs> One of the two. Isn't that essentially all medicine? Well. Yeah, I mean, if you just take a whole bunch of it at once, right. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Does Does the Joker have ED now? Probably, probably, or it's been cured. <laughs> he has. Oh, does God, he have no. a corkscrew? Uh, uh, never mind. <laughs> he. It, oh man, I'm forgetting the the scientific term for it. <laughs> something something boner. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's move the on. Joker's boner, the Joker's boner, right? That's yeah. a meme. Yeah, <laughs> yep, it is. Uh, yeah. We should mention. Was, where- uh, well, at least this wasn't the worst. This wasn't the worst uh, Batman comic this week, at least. So that is true. No, it wasn't. It was the third worst. Yeah, it's the second. I mean, best. it's not okay. It's a, it's behind All Star Batman. It's, it's the not best Batman bad comic. in the in. in... <laughs> It's not bad in the way that it, like Tom King's Batman is bad from month to month or week to week. Um, it's just a take. It's again, it's a take on these characters that I'm wholly uninterested in, with plot holes and bad bad dialogue at times. And uh, uh, the the major take home point for me, and this is this is my personal. This is a non-objective view of it. I don't think there's anything interesting to be done with the Joker and Batman anymore. Make one of them sane, the other one insane, doesn't matter. It's it's pretty much done. I'm I'm I like the I wish the Joker was more of like a background character that slipped in and out the way that he kind of was in like he was in Grant Morrison's run, but he was not ever center stage and he was not the main villain. And I want to see him more in that capacity where, you know, he's always running around somewhere, maybe causing a little mayhem. I'm done with this thing where like every time he shows up, it's, this is going to be a Joker story for six issues or whatever. And it's going to be, you know, and it's going to be the definitive Joker story. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> I would respect whoever is next. Like, this is a really slight Joker story. No real, no real impact here. It's just, you know. Yeah, like him, uh, you know, uh, robbing a bank or something. Like, I, I just want to see that, you know. 
I mean, if Jingle Bells has taught me anything, he'll get away. But <laughs> well, Brian still smells. So yeah, that is true. That is true. All I right. laid. I laid an egg. <laughs> Zach took ballet. Uh, um, did either of you guys read Cyborg? I I did. Uh, I don't have much to say about it. I did not, so I have nothing to say about it. I will just say can... that the jazz man showed up again. Um, <laughs> did he testify? <laughs> he did not. <laughs> Uh, it came up to the spot like an extra fly. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. That jazz man is like the best part of this book, actually. <laughs> I mean, He's to be great. fair, yeah. He really is. The fact that he is like 100% Bleeding Gums Murphy is uh, <laughs> is great. So. Yeah. Uh... All right. Well, let's move on from that. We're going to do it, guys. We're going to talk about Dastardly and Muttley number two. Oh, Man. hell yeah, baby. I, I like this book a lot. I like this book a lot, too, guys. I don't know. I was so unsure last time. I was really unsure. But here we are, and, uh, you know, people are getting holes shot through them. and uh... <laughs> But cartoon holes, like Hanna-Barbera yes. holes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And no blood. Yeah, no blood. Yeah. That's the way it should be. Yeah, and, this book uh, is fun and weird and manic. And uh, what's uh, the that one character gets or the um, the shark gets sprinkled with that like cartoon gas and turns yeah. into Jabberjaw? Is it Jabberjaw? Is that right? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not sure, but uh, I know what you mean. What? Neither of you know Jabberjaw. I, I'm familiar no. with, with the with the name Jabberjaw, but I couldn't point the character out of the lineup. The, uh, he's but, he's but a shark yeah, that drums. Basically, yeah. He's a shark that like. drums, and he's got a a guy who looks a lot like Shaggy. In the, it's basically Scooby Doo, but with a shark. Jabberjaw and the Neptunes. The Shaggy character is a, a redneck instead of a. You've. Pothead, yeah. <laughs> Jabberjaw probably had like uh, you curly. You keep from saying the three Jabberjaw. Stooges. We're not going to be more familiar. <laughs> oh, oh, wait. You you said Jabberjaw. <laughs> okay. I always pronounced that Jabberjaw. So now, <laughs> now I know. Wow. I think his voice was like you know how they always had like a voice based on a comedian. Yeah. It was Frank Welker. Yes. Frank Welker voiced Jabberjaw, and he did like a Curly from the Three Stooges voice. Ooh. So, exactly. So, like stuff would happen, and he'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And uh, Mo was their leader. And he also said, uh, "No respect. I get no respect." Like Rodney Dangerfield. This is all true. I'm not making any of this up. It would be better if, in the middle, you inserted something that patently wasn't true. And just, you know, we would have believed you. And then years and later, sh- we'd be on some, like, trivia show and could win a million dollars. And we're like, oh, I know Jabberjaw. He has a corkscrew dick. And, uh, you know, and then we lose the money then because you told us something. They're like, oh, no, yeah. actually. 
instead of instead of solving crimes like Scooby Doo, Jabberjaw and the Neptunes were just really into group sex. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> Listen, there were only sixteen episodes. I've probably seen them all on Cartoon Network. If you guys haven't seen a Jabberjaw, please waste fifteen minutes of your time and watch it. I make no promises. All right, um, assi- assignment for next week's episode, watch an episode of Jabberjaw. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. All right. Um, but, yeah, this book is crazy and awesome. And thank you, uh, Morissette, for some of the most bizarre visuals I've seen in a comic this year. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Deathstroke number 24, written by Christopher Priest, illustrated by Theogenes Nevis. Um, this is an issue that's kind of Kid Flash-centric. Uh, we get uh, Kid Flash being called out for thinking Power Girl's hot. Uh, we also see him being a, a pawn in uh, Jericho's trying to pick up a dude at the uh, department store. Um, I don't quite understand. So does Slade have a device that is recording his thoughts? Or is is Wally just saying this stuff out loud when no one's listening? No, I think, I think Wally is... Wally had, like, a recording device. He was keeping, like, an audio journal, and Slade found it. Oh, okay. That's how I read it. Okay. I may be off there. That sounds about right to me. Okay. Um, yeah. Listeners, it, it, correct while, me. Yeah, Wally's been spying on them with this recorder. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, so what do you guys uh, think of this issue? I uh, I really dug this issue a lot. I liked this, it. This book has become such a different animal and yet so much fun. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, it, it, it kind of sucks that, that Wally got siphoned off of Teen Titans, but he's so good here that I'm not complaining. Like, yeah, and leave it to Priest to, like, come up with, like, an interesting, you know, he has something interesting to say about the Flash and his powers. That's, you know, that's something I never would have really thought about the the fact that when he's not on the ground he, he no is control. not yeah he's not moving at super speed anymore necessarily you know or yeah not, or yeah or it's just like mo- you know the momentum carrying him or whatever exactly right it's not, yeah. yeah yeah uh christopher priest does a, a a neat thing where he has slayed challenge wally in a very specific way and um it's tailored to that. And it's not something I think I, excuse me, um, that I think I've ever seen them do with a flash character before, but, uh, it was really interesting. It was. Yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like priest is, is really good at finding, unique ways to make these characters interesting like no none of these none of these people are stock stock characters at all not a single one of them 
No, they're not. They're all interesting. Although I've been, I think I've maybe been a little um, confused over the last few issues, but I haven't said anything because it's such a small part. But who is the redheaded character who keeps saying Claire? Um, where is this? Show us where. Uh, it's like throughout this issue. She is all she is. She's. I think she's like. Hold on. Uh, is it Tara? Mm, I'm, she's on the first page. Hang on. She's been like in every issue over the past few months. Let's see here. Uh, I don't. Oh no! Yeah. I don't have it right now, but I assume. I think that's supposed to be a character that we don't know yet who it is. I agree. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we know who that is yet. Okay. Yeah, because then she shows up again towards the end. She's like breaking into that guy's house and still saying Claire. Talk amongst yourselves. I'm gonna do a Google real quick. Okay. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't think we're supposed to know who that is yet. Okay, as long as I'm not like totally lost. What do you guys think about uh, Killer Frost being in the society? I didn't even spot that. Let me see. You're yes, right. I wondered. I wondered about that too. I was like, either Priest didn't get the message, or you know <laughs> what? And what an interesting crew that this society is. Made, yes. made up of yeah. for sure. We got uh, we got um, the non Daniel West Reverse Flash. We have Hector Hammond. We have Black Manta. We have Raptor, Killer Frost. Um, is that supposed to be um, uh, Vandal Savage? We think. Mm. Yeah, Ultra yeah. Humanite. Yep, and I don't know who that is at the front. I'm not sure either. Um, I really got to Jack. I really got to pull this issue up. Oh, you know who I thought that was, but it wouldn't. I don't think it would make any sense. Who's that? I thought that was. Uh, uh, what's his name? King. Um, oh, Tom King. <laughs> no. Uh, no, not King. Uh, I'm sorry. Never mind. Forget I said anything. <laughs> oh, Jeff King. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff King. Yep. Convergence. So um, I, uh, just because of the glasses, I briefly thought it was James Gordon Jr., but mm, it's not. Interesting. I can't think. He kind of looks like. Dr. Octopus, like yeah, in the face does. with the glasses and the hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess that I guess that character that's saying Claire is uh, Willow from the League of Assassins. Uh, oh, yeah. They mention her, right? I think so. I believe so. They mention that name. Okay. King, King Faraday is who I thought that was at first. Just because, just because that's kind of how he looked in Future's End, uh-huh. but I, I don't know why the missing hand would be, uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. 
Well, anything else to add about this issue? No, I think it's still very good. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well, that brings us to our other metal tie-in this week, the finale of the Gotham Resistance, Green Arrow, number 32, written by Ben Percy and Josh Williamson, illustrated by Juan Ferreira. Um, We get a lot of Mr. Terrific in this issue. We get a little bit of uh, Dr. Fate in this issue. We get um, some some pretty decent Damien stuff. Um, we get Juan Ferreira art, which I'm always a fan of. However, I would say that this issue was maybe the most... Um, and it's hard to say this after a week of Suicide Squad, but maybe the most heavy-handed of these Gotham Resistance tie-ins yet. There's a lot of characters oh, speaking their feelings. I'm going to double down real hard and say that I liked this issue a lot, and I liked this crossover a lot. You know, I got you shit guys for, can you guys I got can, shit for liking the second one so much. No, you you well, were saying that you couldn't believe I liked the second one more than I than uh, or the I, first one more than uh, and I and I and I still stand by that. Yeah. I'm I'm doubling down and saying that I think these last two issues made the crossover for me. Mm. You guys can just take it. Paul, if you're listening, <laughs> here it is. This is for you. <laughs> we know Paul likes it when we disagree, so he likes it a lot. <laughs> he does. Um, um I thought this was just a little bit heavy handed. I thought it was still fine, but there's just there, there's a lot of 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 Damien psychoanalyzing and being psychoanalyzed here, but I will say you're not I, wrong. You're not wrong. Um, I also didn't like Harley Quinn saying like, uh, "What are we? Some kind of Gotham resistance?" She didn't actually say that, but you know, essentially, oh, she I says wish she that, had. Yeah, she says we are the Gotham resistance instead. Um, but you know, th- there there's a lot to like in this issue. It's just a little bit, like I said, over, a little heavy handed for me. That's fair. I think. I mean, I'll be honest. I think a lot of my enjoyment of this issue. There's a few things. the The Juan Ferreira art is really, really good. Um, I love the Mister Terrific stuff. Um, I just feel like. This is a really, I feel like this is a really good tie-in. I feel like it um, adds something to metal and it it doesn't feel inconsequential, but it's also not an imperative read. I feel like it, you know, it it existing, it, it, it benefits me as a reader to have read it, but it's also not hurting someone who doesn't read it you know right i have a feeling that in metal number three ollie's gonna ollie or damien's gonna say to to somebody like we figured out how to kill them it's the nth metal and that's going to be like the big connection here is that that bit of knowledge is going to be what what is going to be carried over and the rest of the crossover not so much but you know what it was a fun ride to get there yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I think I think we're probably just kind of based on some of the stuff we've seen about the next crossover, the Justice League stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of this might funnel into that because it seems like Doctor Fate is kind of like harvesting people for this like big uh, yeah. battle arena thing or whatever. 
Um, and, you know, I also think that there's probably a lot of um, terrific stuff in here because obviously there's Mr. Terrific, there's they references plastic to man. Plastic Man. Yeah, I think that the the roots of that are maybe in here a little bit. Vince, you've been uncharacteristically quiet. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> I I'm just I guess I'm just not a huge fan of this crossover anymore. I I saw the promise right at the beginning. I was excited to see this kind of unique team, this sort of a de facto team form, and I guess the whole thing since then has just been too rote for me. It's like you said, you know, oh they figured out the way that they're going to defeat um this evil and. Uh, you know, that's going to cross over and very little else is. And um, I don't know, the novelty of it kind of wore off for me. For whatever reason, I just didn't connect with this very much. And I'm not. Um, I When I read, I think compared to the metal issues, these, these issues pale in, in comparison. And I'll even include the first two uh, alternate Batman stories, you know, Dawnbreaker aside. They just feel a lot more special than than these crossover issues, Gotham Resistance issues. I'm uh, I'm pretty surprised that I came out the highest on this issue, <laughs> uh, on this on this arc, really. Yeah, I don't know. That's the magic of the DC three cast. You never know. Yeah, and I think I don't know. I mean, sometimes sometimes like. You like an idea at first, and then it just runs its course with you, right? I mean, it's no... I'm not necessarily faulting the writers or anything. It's just that I I guess I didn't connect with this idea as much as I initially did. That's fair. I don't think anything's changed about the writing or the quality of the art or the package or anything. I think mm-hmm. it's just, eh, okay, this, this is clearly third fiddle to the metal books and the Batman one shots. Well, that brings us to Green Lanterns number 32 written by Sam Humphreys, illustrated by Scott Godlewski. Hey um, guys, do you want pancakes? Do you, okay. do you, do you like pancakes? Is that, wouldn't it be great if we had pancakes right now? I mean, it would isn't be. That, isn't that so quirky that like a couple of superheroes would just be pancake obsessed and, want pancakes all the time. Um, have either of you guys read the Hellboy story pancakes? Mm, no. It is maybe my favorite Hellboy story ever. It is one page, maybe? Maybe it's two pages. And it's like young Hellboy in the BPRD mess hall eating pancakes for the first time. And and he calls them pancakes, and he's like he loves them. And then you see in hell, a demon comes to Satan is like we've lost him. He's tried the pancakes. <laughs> like, essentially, like that's like the key to his humanity. And like it's the perfect little story. And this tries to do something that's that clever in like fifteen times the space and fails miserably. And God, I hate this issue. Now that's funny. The the problem is is that the writing mistakes them liking pancakes as this like super quirky personality trait that makes them uniquely who they are, you know? 
versus like 80% of the humans on earth. <laughs> right. Right. And it's such a contrived like, oh, I need to I need to think of something normy that they're going to love and it's going to be funny because they are obsessed they're pancake obsessed even though they've got uh world-ending consequences on the on the on the fringe, you know, uh, that they have to deal with. And I, I don't know why this reminds me of that. But one of my favorite all-time uh, Onion headlines is, uh, I'm like a chocoholic only for booze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see, that's actually funny. It's that not just a character funny. saying pancakes over and over again. Like the number yeah. of times that he has Jess saying, but pancakes, yeah. in like the voice of an eight-year-old is egregious. <laughs> yeah. It's trying way too hard to be something it's not, you know? I, I feel like this issue is trying to be like, you know, we know they've been off-world a lot, but there's still the quirky Simon and Jess you've always known. And, like, we really <laughs> didn't know those characters that well. Yeah. Like, this isn't some return to, uh, you know, like, it wasn't like the pancakes thing has been teased out since issue one. Right. Um... What was the what was with, <laughs> what was with the what's by the way? What's the deal with, with what? <laughs> what's the deal with pancakes? Is it a pan? Is it a cake? Who names this stuff? Uh, no, like first of all, what's the deal with the dialogue in this book? Like at the party, oh my! God, everybody at that party are the most annoying people in the world, all gathered in one place. And what's the deal with the guy who wants beer? He's at this party and he wants beer really bad. And he's like looking like a cross between Archie and, uh, I mean, he looks like Archie Andrews. And, and Volthoom and Frank Leminski and everybody yeah. else, yeah. And Guy Gardner. Yeah. And he's he's looking for beer. And then he's like, you two are pathetic. If you're so funny, how come you're alone in here and the party's out there? What party guest talks <laughs> to the host? Like, how did he end up at this party? Uh, like, who behaves that way? This and is it's just, just... It seems like it's a party of people sit around talking. It's not like there's a, you know, cocaine and sex party happening in the other room and these two squares are missing out on it. Like, we were just in that room. It was people sitting around talking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was so weird. It was so off-putting and and just again way over the top and uh and the stuff with like Simon arguing with his brother started off pretty strong and like uh, oh okay, like I I can buy this as like a discussion they'd be having. And then all of a sudden they kind of like just it went away from them for a little bit and then when it came back they were just hugging and their problems were over you know there was no real resolution to their conversation this whole thing was just a mess yeah i I didn't feel like i was reading like the linear behavior of actual human beings in any of this well this was the last issue right or do we have one more uh, I think the next one is the next one maybe a metal tie-in. That's right. No, no, that's Hal Jordan. Oh, okay. Here. I think the next one's Celia. I think it is. Quick Google. Well, anything's gonna be better than this. I hope. 
Yeah. And I and it is Seely. All okay. right. Oh man, I hope Dick Grayson gets written like a actual human being. Yeah. When when Humphreys takes over. Dick Grayson's gonna be like breakfast burritos, am I right? <laughs> Tacos, baby. <laughs> Forget, Let's... forget, forget my butt! It's taco time. <laughs> I, if I had a nickel for every time I've said that phrase, <laughs> that's like something Tracy Jordan would yell out. <laughs> yes, in, it uh, is. Yeah. Thirty Rock. <laughs> well, f- from from one food obsessed character to another, let's go to Harley and Ivy meet Betty and Veronica. See, see that? See, see that Eisner nominated uh, transition there. Yeah, I yeah. thought you said foot obsessed for, uh, at first, but uh... yep, you know that famous foot fetish of uh, Archie Andrews. <laughs> just, just can't get it. That's why you can't choose Betty or Veronica. They have different kinds of feet, and they both get them off. Um, <sighs> this is written by uh, Paul Dini and uh, Mark Andreco, and um, illustrated by. I gotta look her name up. Uh, I was not. Super familiar with her work. Uh, Laura Braga. And, uh, yeah, this is pretty much exactly what you think it's going to be. A little bit of a a record scratch twist at the last page there. But overall, it was kind of your standard standard intercompany crossover stuff. Nothing super interesting, but nothing super offensive. What did you guys think? Uh, your thoughts exactly. <laughs> yes, I, I, I thought it was very standard, and yet, for an issue anyway, I had some fun with it. Um, I had fun with uh, Veronica's dad clearly being um, a, a a famous famous billionaire we all know and love. Uh, as as is the as. As you're wont to do in the time, the as is the parlance of our times, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> in the parlance of our times, uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing Big Lebowski tonight. We, I guess. we are, yes, um, yeah. And I thought the, I thought it was funny that uh, Mr. Weatherby is stupid, sexy Weatherby now. <laughs> 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 and uh, and and the whole costume costume stuff at the end was a lot of fun. Has um, um has Veronica's dad's manservant always been Smithers, or is that a Simpsons joke? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was funny that uh, Archie was wearing the superhero costume with the Secret Origins of Archie comic book yeah. that he was holding up. Um, at one point, a character comes in dressed as Arthur from uh, <laughs> Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fun, a lot of fun little stuff in here. I was really hoping that you met Arthur from the movie Arthur. A- anyone in a tuxedo you think is Dudley Moore and Arthur? <laughs> do the do the song again. Do the it's what? The, first, the song, the song, Arthur's song. I, I don't, I don't know what's funny about getting caught between the moon and New York City. It sounds like a nightmare to me. I'm not going to justify this with a. a... <laughs> what's funny is that on a DC podcast, we've somehow referenced that song like three times now. <laughs> hey. The best you can do is fall in love, okay? 
Um, also, the the, uh, the the costume emporium where these costumes came from is Miss Van Vliet's. Is this Captain Beefheart's wife? I hope uh, so. Running a costume shop. <laughs> Whoa, is that me, Bop? That's my, uh, that's my Beefheart impression right there. <laughs> it's also your Tom Waits. <laughs> a little bit deeper. <laughs> and your Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen's. I can't, I can't do Leonard Cohen. I can't. He's, a little, sm- he's a little smoother. He's a little smoother. Yeah. Um, he aches yeah. in the places that he used to play. Um, yep. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, the the point of what I'm trying to say is that I enjoyed this for an issue. I'm not sure how much staying power it has with me. Agreed. But, th- but there's some fun stuff in here. This is harmless. A very harmless comic. Uh, should we skip ahead to the other crossover? Sure. Right? Um, that's uh, issue number one of The Shadow Batman. Let's just, before we get into this, uh, how weird is it that Batman The Shadow ended last week, and now The Shadow Batman starts this week? It's pretty weird. Yeah. Especially because they, they don't appear to be... One is not a... a, a prequel or sequel to the other one at least not yet the only connection they seem to have is a writer yeah which is uh steve orlando and this series is illustrated by giovanni timpano um vince i know you are particularly not excited about this issue about about this uh about this book rather did this did this issue change your mind at all it did um I'm just very skeptical of dynamite in general. I think they tend to um, skimp on the art, you know, Mm -hmm. when they have a good artist, they seem to use them for, you know, three issues or an arc and then just do everything else in this style, this like continuous style of art across almost all their books. That is just completely not my bag, which is the, the stiff posed, almost painterly, um, not like Ben Oliver, who Zach hates. Yeah. But <laughs> well, I'm he's just, no JRJR. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, not oh, like not. that. You know, same sort of style, but like never reaching Ben Oliver's um, ability to emote or draw action. Like I just feel like their books are so stiff across the board. And I feel like they don't their their books drop in quality so heavily after I imagine after the sales start to drop, you know, yeah, I feel like that's a trend with dynamite across the board, but I will say that this issue doesn't suffer from that at all. This art is really nice, maybe not my favorite stylistically in the world but but it's not the type that. I was that I talked about and was worried about that that, that uh, dynamite usually touts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Orlando got a lot of stuff very right, and I'm talking about like Damien's dialogue. I think he found a really interesting relationship to Batman, like a very adversarial one, but but one that I believe, you know, yeah. Like I believe in this as a little bit older of Damien who's kind of out now uh, running his own Titans team, you know? Like I buy that. 
I, I buy the way that he's reacting to Bruce. He seems almost disconnected where he expects, he expects Bruce to not know what he's doing. And yet he also knows that, Oh, my dad is Batman. Of course he knows what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. He play he rides that line extremely well. It's a really smart, it's a really smart choice on Orlando's part to, to ride that line. Mm-hmm. And I think he writes uh, professor pig like note perfectly the way that Grant Morrison did where like he speaks in riddles almost where it clearly makes sense to him. And if you think about it a little bit, it might even make sense to you, but it's all, there's always something kind of off about the way he talks. And, uh, I think he gets it right where other writers maybe haven't gotten it as close to the way that Morrison writes that character. Um, and and then the the quote unquote twist at the end is so amazing. <laughs> it's written. It's the dialogue is amazing on that last page. Zach, what did you think of this? I liked it. Um, definitely more than I expected to. Maybe, uh, well, I won't say that I liked it more than the other one yet because it's it's just too early. But I thought, I thought the art was really good. Um, I thought that, like, kind of Vince said, the Professor Pig stuff was really good. And also, isn't it funny how like Professor Pig is like an A list Batman villain now? He's like everywhere. He's very easy to throw into things. Yeah, I guess saying that he's A list is maybe not totally correct, but yeah. he is he is everywhere. I feel like. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I thought this was interesting. I, I don't really, it doesn't really feel like a shadow story at this point, you know? No, it doesn't, which is weird because this is the dynamite half of this crossover. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm like cautiously optimistic about this. I think it's crazy that we might get like the two best Batman crossovers ever back to back <laughs> featuring the same <laughs> crossover character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll still uh, hold a candle for Batman Hellboy, but, uh, but, you, but you, but you know, you know what I'm saying though? I mean, this is, these are two kind of extraordinary bat crossovers happening back to back with the same character. It's very, very odd. Mm-hmm. But welcome. Very welcome. Anything else to say? I, I do want to say uh, that the art is is far better than I anticipated. I, I will say that there have been a number of Dynamite books in the last, let's call it, three or four years that have had better art than I expected. You know, we got that great Jeff Parker, Doc Shaner, uh, Flash Gordon series. Um Scott Kowalczyk, a.k.a. Ghost Rider X, is doing really nice stuff on um, the Sword Quest book for them right now. You know, th- th- there are a few books that have uh, that have good art, but I, Vince, I think that your your criticism is, is spot on. That a lot of their stuff is just that um, it all looks like people who became artists by trying to draw, like, Conan stories. <laughs> yeah, yep. Um, and then apl- applying that to, like, pulp Right, exactly. Doesn't yeah. always do it for me. Right. Yeah. Can I can I say that that I will admit that maybe 
maybe things have changed for the better uh, recently because I was I was trying out a lot of dynamite maybe three years ago and the, and it was not what I wanted. Uh-huh. So maybe my impressions are still from like three years ago. I don't think but, your impressions are that wrong. Okay. I, I think there have been outliers. And I think that, you know, um, uh, I'm not going to pull his name. I'm not even going to try. There's an editor over there who was doing some of the, the gold key stuff. And uh, I can think of his right. first name, but not his last name. And, and I think he has a, a pretty decent visual sense. And so if he is the editor on a book, I tend to think, oh, that's that's going to look a lot nicer than uh, than your standard dynamite stuff. But, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a a glowing. Uh, a glowing, you know, critique of their of their work or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, can I? Uh, that last page, you guys. <laughs> yeah, what do you think is happening there? I don't know what's happening, but it's it's such a great way to end an issue. When he goes, I know you think you're smarter than me, Dad, but there's just one thing: I'm not the one holding a bat grenade. Yeah. And he goes, "What? No!" And it blows up. Dad is in quotations, so clearly he. Damien thinks that this is some sort of Batman imposter. Right. And that could very well be the case. But, like, that's just the perfect way to end a comic book. Because comic books are supposed to end with these twists that don't necessarily turn into what they were sold as the month before. You this know, is, This is how everyone expected the Commandy Challenge to end every month. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And of course, the the it, I love the thing at the bottom where it says "next Park Avenue Patricide." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, obviously he didn't kill his dad, but right. I love that. I love that they do that and just like let it hang for a month. Yeah, super fun. Super fun. Uh, that brings us to Justice League number thirty, written by Brian Hitch, illustrated by Fernando Pissarin. Um. Honestly, guys, I don't have too much more to say about this than we had said last time, except I did not expect Hippolyta to be that villain, nor do I really care that Hippolyta's that villain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on here. I'm not always sure that I'm, like, following it. Um... It's fine. Well, don't worry. If you're not following it, they will explicitly tell you what happened in the very next issue. Exactly. That's what I'm. That's what I'm waiting for. I have had like one or two things where I wasn't sure, and then in the next issue, they're like, they just spell it out again for you. Um. But this isn't bad. I, I I like this alternate timeline type stuff. You know. Yeah. Um, this is definitely the best this book's been. Yes. Yep. Yep. And the art is gorgeous. Passeran's art is awesome. Yeah. Um, this was this issue was a little wordier. It's yeah. A little. I feel like any time like a new character gets involved, the character has to explain in very long paragraphs what's going on. You know, like when Steve shows up and. Wonder Woman like basically explains everything to him in 
in three very wordy pa- panels. And then Aquaman shows up, and his daughter explains everything in very wordy panels. And yeah. then Apollo shows up, and they explain everything. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, but the but the concept is sound. Yeah. All right, that uh, brings us to Nightwing number thirty, the first part of the, um, I guess the last arc from Tim Seeley on this book, with uh, Tim Seeley writing and. Um, we have the returning Miguel Mendonca, Mendonca on pencils. Um, this issue has a lot of the things that are sort of the cornerstones of this run from Sealy. You get Raptor returning. You get um, Blockbuster there. You get the the League of Former uh, Supervillains, whatever they call themselves. Like this, this arc very much feels the like the runoffs. My the friend. runoffs, the yeah. Runoffs. Uh, this arc very much feels like Sealy beginning to uh, to to wrap up his his run, and, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. Um, am I the only one who's who's a little bit put off by the Dick Helena relationship in this? Yeah. <laughs> but that's cuz we're that's cuz we're uh uh dick bab shippers, yeah. Dick bab shippers. Yeah. <laughs> it just seemed it just seemed very uh controlling. I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. I wonder how that's going to shake out. Yeah. But what do you guys think about this issue? Uh, I really don't like Blockbuster. Um, I didn't love this. Yeah, I don't. I don't give a crap about this. Like casino, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I I give a crap about the runoffs. I, I like Raptor. I like Raptor a lot. Mm-hmm. I like his angle, you know. I don't give a crap about the casino or about Blockbuster at all. And nothing you can do will make me care. <laughs> but I do like Dick's, like, I will leave Bloodhaven forever thing because that's probably going to be the next uh, status quo, right? I think I read that uh, Humphreys is keeping him in Bloodhaven. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I could maybe be mistaken that, about that. Maybe that was uh, Tim Seeley kind of giving giving the next writer an out. Maybe if they right, wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know, man. Give Give me a reason to care about. I don't think I'll ever care about Blockbuster. I guess. What about you, Brian? Uh, I mean, I, I'm not particularly a blockbuster fan, but he was such a small part of this issue. It didn't really bother me that much. Um, like I said, I, I feel like this has all the hallmarks of like a last arc that a writer is doing on the book, trying to bring back all the little things that he had set up and maybe, you know, tie some bows here and there. It was fine. <sighs> yeah, it was fine. Yeah. That's uh, I'll second that emotion, Brian. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Smokey. <laughs> and uh, all right, let's close things out for this part of the show with Superman number thirty-two, written by James Bonney, illustrated by Tyler Kirkham. 
I decided that's the most like late period New Fifty Two you can get. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did not like this at all. I mean, what was the point of this? Nothing. They try to sum it up to you in a very, uh, <laughs> very overt uh, ending uh, narration from from Slade. I think right. Killing changes you. It changed me. Deep down, I hope Superman is right. But when you blink in the presence of a predator, it can be suicide. It's twisted. It is twisted. It we is, couldn't get. It is truly twisted. We couldn't get through this without a, a an Amanda Waller appearance, could we? What, no. but, but what even is the point of that? Because this isn't gonna be followed up anywhere. Well, <laughs> no, of course it, not. It, if she if she didn't show up. We might forget that Suicide Squad's a thing. Even though she's referenced in the Green Arrow issue. Well, we still might forget that, you know, these these characters that they rarely bring around. Gotta pull them out every once in a while, you know? Yeah. Gotta protect that intellectual property. And it is an intellectual property. <laughs> 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 can you imagine if like um tom strong was treated the way now that that suicide squad is treated like it's just an just a lot of like fart jokes <laughs> well i was thinking more like just the volume of appearances oh, like oh, okay. but, but i like i like your angle that's interesting i think you're gonna say wouldn't it be funny if somehow just amanda waller became public domain and you would see her like showing up in all these crappy movies and things because <laughs> no one had to pay for it well, isn't isn't she the one that's putting together the Universal Monsters? <laughs> I believe so, yeah. What is this? Some kind of <laughs> Universal Monster Squad? <laughs> what is this? What is this? Some kind of Monster Mash? <laughs> oh. If, I, 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 have, I have to say. I do if, not recall uh, signing up for a graveyard smash. I'm just saying. <laughs> the... Uh, but I think the Universal Monsters reboot movies with like uh, Tom Cruise and all of them. Yeah. I think if they go far enough off the rails where it's clearly not going to be a financially successful endeavor, they should just end whatever whatever this is all leading up to. the The movie should end with a dance sequence where they do the monster mash, yeah. and it's like a it's just a party, a graveyard smash, if you will. Well, just today they announced that the Bride of Frankenstein is delayed indefinitely. That that was supposed to be the next one. It's it's never getting made. Oh no, of course not. <laughs> it, it, it's also really fucking stupid to do the Bride of Frankenstein second, <laughs> as opposed to you know Frankenstein. None of this connects to anything. So let's let's start with with the uh, with you know with a. I mean, it's it's like they're taking uh, uh, cinematic universe cues from DC or yeah. something. <laughs> Warner Brothers. Did you guys see that Ben Affleck today said that he agrees with a lot of the criticisms about Batman versus uh-huh. Superman? I did course, see that. Of yeah. course he does. Yeah. So <clears throat> so does Kevin Smith after he's already said that Batman versus Superman was awesome. Yeah, the best Batman on screen ever. I feel like he does that every time a, a movie comes out like yeah. Oh, this, mo- this movie was great and then like public consensus comes out and then Fat Man on Batman 3 months later is like, "Eh, it was shit." Did you guys watch that like special he and Jeff Johns hosted on the CW? 
Absolutely not. Oh, I, I caught bits of it, yeah. Um, was he wearing a gigantic hockey jersey? Of course he was. He, he's in public. He has to. He, contractually, he has to wear a hockey jersey everywhere he goes. Or his ch- there's a sniper on his child at all times. And if he leaves the house without a hockey jersey, she's gone, man. That's the don't only you, explanation. Don't, don't you say that about Harlequin Smith. Yeah. Uh, but in that special, Kevin Smith, like I, I feel like he did one take, and the director was like, hey, Kevin, come here. It's like, you gotta sell this, man. You gotta go over the top. So, like, everything he said was like, hey, everybody, it's time for Batman v Superman! And and, and he and Jeff Johns both kept saying Batman v Superman, like, Boy. all the time. Instead of Batman very Superman. Right, like yes, of to. course, yes. Or Batman five Superman. We've been through this. <laughs> this is a DC3 cast deep cut here. Just Didn't... as he's contractually obligated to wear a hockey jersey, we have to... <laughs> Anytime Batman v Superman is mentioned, yes, we we have to establish that Ben Affleck is actually playing Slade Wilson. <laughs> Didn't they realize that they were literally hiring Silent Bob? <laughs> oh, uh, well, Snugins. Yeah. Um, why First, you take a run at Lafour's with a sock full of quarters. <laughs> I have a lot of love in my heart for those first three Kevin Smith movies. So, uh, you know, New Jersey, etc. Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, let's take a break. We're back with our Legion Lost wrap up in just a second. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Klaus' Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow on iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. All right, welcome back um, to our second week of our coverage of, I guess it's not even really coverage, our retrospective on Legion Lost, the early 2000s Legion miniseries by... Uh, Dan Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning and uh, a few a few different artists. This week we're covering issues four through six, which were illustrated by Pax, Pascal Lixi. Um, and the middle one was was Quipel. Was it okay? Yeah, Man, they yep. look so similar. They do that's something we can discuss. I didn't yeah. even notice that actually. Um. So yeah. Uh. This in this batch of issues um we kind of get some more character centric uh arcs that sort of loosely move the story along um what did you guys think about issues four through six well four if you don't mind me going first um four was really interesting it was kind of like a um almost like an interstitial episode it kind of it kind of picked up the general plot towards the end but the first three quarters of the issue were very much like, okay, we've gotten past the threat for now. Brainy's gonna—we're gonna show Brainy trying to figure out their way home. 
Uh, we're going to show like some danger room style training, which made me think I, I said last time that this series was finally making me see what everyone's talking about when they say that the Legion are kind of like DC's X-Men. Mm-hmm. This this issue like hit that home in a big way with the like danger room training. Uh, it showed a little bit of live wire Saturn girl relationship stuff like everyone's kind of it's kind of a limbo issue but it's kind of fun because everyone gets their little sort of status update um and at first i thought oh that's a fun thing to do with a fill-in artist as well because it kind of makes it its own separate thing but then pascal lixi came back in a couple issues so that wasn't really it but for an issue it kind of felt that way um the art is a little, I mean, I've seen Pascal Elixir before, and I think I've liked the art. That's a name that I remember, you know? But this is very much of a time. <laughs> like, this looks so much like the time in comics. The circa 2000. Mm-hmm. Late 90s style. Um, so I want to talk about issue number five. Which I think is my favorite issue of the series thus far. I really love the Brainiac perspective that this issue takes. I really enjoyed him, like his list of of ongoing problems and other <laughs> things that he is like updating as it goes along. I feel like Brainiac Five is a tough character to to get a handle on sometimes because he is this like you know hyper intelligent. Uh, almost robotic character. I mean, you know, he just aloof. He, yeah, aloof and, and not really, you know, um, it, it, it can be just hard to get to get a read on him. So it's to have an issue like this, which gives you a better. Like one of my favorite parts was when um, the alien. I'm forgetting her name now. Uh, the not legionnaire. Right. Uh, I think it's Shikari. They've started. Co- yeah. or- they they started calling her Kari for short, yeah. or some of the characters have. Yeah. yeah. When when Shikari is like, "Thank you for trusting me," and instantly his monologue was like, "I don't trust her." You know, there were <laughs> there, there were there were a lot of like really great moments like that for Brainiac, and uh, I feel like while he is that aloof character, he's also a character that I feel like if you have no Legion experience, and I have very little Legion experience, you can instantly understand who he is and what he's all about. So to have him as sort of the glyph for the issue and for the team is really convenient because you don't need to know anything to understand who he is, what his motivations are, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really liked issue five as well, and I may second you in that being my my favorite one so far. I thought the the whole kind of like uh, it was almost kind of like a not quite a bottle story mm-hmm. but just the you know the one and done with the um with like the pyramid thing the space pyramid and the the all eater yeah um i thought that was really interesting and fun um i i like how this series is kind of played like really kind of fast and loose with a lot of really kind of high concept sci-fi stuff um you know like in i think in issue four brainiac built a faster than light drive and they 
came across some like energy devouring parasites you know there's a lot of like crazy ideas i'm not necessarily crazy but just like a a lot of like fun sci-fi ideas being thrown around yeah yeah um but i also i really liked issue six a lot with the um the story beat of uh saturn girl kind of maybe taking her her powers to kind of a dark place and spying on some of the characters and then the repercussions of that you know she's manifest this sort of psychic demon thing that's attacking everyone yeah and you kind of you kind of saw hints of that in the first couple issues but i didn't necessarily think anything of it like right yeah there was one scene where she walked into some she came into somebody's room and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's um, that is really interesting. This this has been fun. Um, I don't think I've ever read a Legion story like this. I mean, it, very, it feels very Abnet, very Abnet and Lanning actually. Um, it feels of the same sort of mindset that their guardian stuff was lots of little high concept bits. Yeah. Um, do you, so I guess Brian, you have kind of said that you're identifying most with Brainiac, I guess. Well, I don't know if I'm identifying most most of him. I I just think that he's the easiest like pathway in. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, I'm. I think that's true of Brainiac, but I also think I'm. I'm getting to know these other characters more than I have from other Legion stories. I think I kind of alluded to this last time, but um, Legion has been something that I've always been interested in, and yet I, it's it's kept me at an arm's length by being a little impersonable. But I feel like a lot of these characters are getting personalities. Like I get Livewire's personality and I get Saturn girl's personality and, um, brainy, brainy, obviously. And, and one thing I thought while reading this, especially that brainiac issue, uh, number five was how much I miss brainiac five in rebirth right now. Like that is a character that's really missing from the you know rebirth gumbo that we've got going yeah from the stew we've got going <laughs> he'll be, he'll be at near comic con tomorrow carl weathers carl weathers rest in peace <laughs> Stop. um no i it's interesting I, I was thinking something similar vince where there's 11 legionnaires here if you're counting shikari as a legionnaire there's 11 like main characters here and I feel like, you know, obviously some of them are getting more um, more play than others, but this is still a pared-down Legion story, you know? So it is, even, yeah. Even with 11 characters, you're getting more time with each person than you would in almost any other Legion story you're reading. Absolutely, yep. And I feel like the, I feel like the only characters that are kind of in the background right now are... Monstrous and Chameleon, I want to say. We haven't seen too much from them. 
they're there, but they're not given yeah. much to do yet. We got a little bit of like history on Monstrous, but not like a lot of current stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she doesn't have much to do right now. And Kalean's right, right. been in a couple of the big battles, but you haven't learned a lot about him. Yeah. yeah. And I remember when I was uh, when I was reading the New Fifty Two Legion stuff. I think there was one issue where I counted. You know how in the at least in that series, every time they would do a new issue, they would label all the characters the first time you saw them. Right. And I think in one issue, I literally counted like 25 or 28 labels or something. Yeah. There were 28 Legion characters in one issue, and I had no idea who anyone was <laughs> except Brainy. Well, that that's why I think that the Legion is such a hard thing to do right, because you also don't want to be in a position where you're eliminating a character that people truly love. But because the Legion never reached the popularity of so many other teams, it's not like... You know, like if, you did, if you did a Justice League without the Flash, there were some people who would be like, that's bullshit, I love the Flash. But there's other places to see the Flash than than Justice League. But like, right. if you're a huge... you know. Um, if you're a huge Saturn Girl fan and she's not on the team, you're going to be pissed off and you may not even buy the book then. So it's you almost have to have a large cast just because you have to give those dedicated fans what they want, even if that's the worst possible thing for the narrative of the book. Sure. But but that's why Legion Lost is so great because it's like eight, eight key Legion, Legion characters done really well. Yeah. I feel like the overall product is so much better that way. Agreed. Zach, um, you're the biggest legionnaire of us, so talk to us. <laughs> well, there was one thing that I thought that was really interesting um, that we picked up in these last few issues was nods to the preceding arc of this, the the little crossover that Abnett and Lanning did in the two Legion books. Um, that dealt with the blight and the blighted Mm -hmm. and that's kind of like the first other i feel like the first three issues were pretty well um self-contained like it didn't really reference too much earlier stuff other than you know they had been stranded uh something had happened and this was like the first nod at like some other continuity that we haven't seen um but i felt like it still did a pretty good job of you know, orienting the reader and kind of giving them the information that they needed to know to to get the story across. Yeah, it definitely didn't feel like. I mean, I I understood what was happening. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. You know. We and kind of on the point. I. I just want to throw that out there. Kind of on the point that you guys were getting at earlier you know i talked a little bit last week that i think it was a really good idea to kind of pare down the cast to make it more accessible um and i think that they did a good job of focusing on some of the like more interesting characters of the book like uh, obviously they can't get everyone there are some characters that i really like that aren't featured here like Starboy, and um you know monel's not here um but I yeah I I really like this book a lot so far. Kind of maybe even more than I necessarily expected to. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I I am definitely you know it's the Legion is one of those properties that I feel like DC should always have a Legion book, even if I'm rarely reading it. Um, but I feel like if if they were more like this, I would have been 
more likely to be reading it with 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 greater consistency. Yeah, I. Uh, you know, I don't think that this would necessarily necessarily work as a great blueprint for how to bring the Legion back in Rebirth, um, because I think that they're probably going to need something that's a little bit more of a fresh start again, sadly. Like, we might have to have another reboot. Um, unless they want to just pick up from where, you know, like, the Levitt's run left off or something. I mean, what I think is the genius of... or not the genius. The, the advantage of doing a Legion book in Rebirth is that you don't really need to reference any previous run that you could just bring these characters back. Like, you know, one of the things that I think would be an interesting way to bring the Legion in is, and I thought they were going to do this at first with, you know, something in Rebirth, was to have some of the Legionnaires, like, trapped in this time, right? So let's say that it's just Saturn girls trapped here, but make the first appearance of the Greater Legion them coming to get her. And then once they go back, just start telling new stories from there. You That's fair. You don't really need to go back too much to the prior continuity because there is such a gap in their continuity with everything else. Like, it would be hard to do that with Batman for a million reasons, but especially because Batman books connect with so many other books. Like Legion books don't connect with anything else. So just pick up and tell new stories. You can do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know we do like have – Saturn Girl is is running around somewhere where we have Phantom Girl coming up in Terrifics, and I assume it's she's still going to be have ties to the Legion, maybe unless it's a completely new version of the character. Um, yeah, who knows? I think that I you maybe won't be far off. Any uh, closing thoughts, gentlemen? I'm uh, I'm interested to see where things go next with this um, this planet and this new hero guy who shows up at the end who I I don't like recognize him from anything or have like a context for him other than he like has a glowing green fist that makes me like think like Green Lantern something but that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you recognized him at all. Mm-mm, I don't. Interesting. Well, that does it for our show, folks. Next week we'll be reading Legion Lost episode, uh, issues 7, 8, and 9. And we'll be talking about all the Rebirth books for next week, which include Dark Knight's Metal number 3, Ragman number 1, uh, the second part of A Lonely Place of Living, and much, much more. So until then... You can find the three of us on Twitter at Brian. I'm at Brian an app. I'm at BJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I'm at SirFox89. And uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, enjoy. Got my dick stuck in this beer bottle. <laughs> uh, if you think I'm cutting that out, you're wrong. Don't watch the news because it makes you feel like a piece of shit.